consider the possibility that science is not an alternative to God, but rather perhaps the testimony of God. Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today we're going to discuss the topic, Does God Exist? My guest is Brian DeVries. Brian is with Search, our area director up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, earned his bachelor's and one of his Master of Science degrees in physics. So I think he is the perfect person to help us answer this question. Brian, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's good to be here. So this is a this is a big topic. It's foundational. It's one of the biggest ones. Does God exist? Where do we even begin to think about a question like this? You know, it's it's interesting what emerges if we were to actually propose the opposite question. What if God does not exist? And what are the outcomes of such a hypothesis? Um, one of my favorite quotes is actually from a gentleman by the name of Dr. William Provine from Cornell University, which I believe he's passed away now. But his, his quote really lives on here. He says, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And I must say that these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. I mean, that's, that's astounding to me. And one of the few individuals that is actually completely honest about what are the outcomes of the proposition if there is no God. It means that we're worthless. We've got no purpose. We're just random accidents. There's no purpose or meaning in our life. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. Good and bad are just relative concepts and constructs. We've got no basis for being disturbed by bad things happening to good people. It's only a random good and bad anyway. Uh, but it, curiously enough, those that do not believe in God or those that are professing atheists, they've got just as big a problem with trying to wrestle with some of these questions that uh, believers in God do. So clearly it's not a pleasant outcome and we don't see the, the honest uh, following of the logic here too often. Wow. So, man, what a way to start this this podcast. Oh, my gosh, you got me thinking about all kinds of different things. So the, the bottom line here is this, this big question, does God exist? This is a fork in the road for how we think of almost every other question that we're going to discuss on this podcast, because if there is a God, you're going to answer things one way. If there isn't a God, you're going a completely different way. And it seems like there really is no middle ground between these two options. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Yeah, like you said, it clearly defines how we act, behave, think. Everything else is an outcome of how we answer this question. Well, let's just dive into answering this question, okay? So I know you've thought through, and there's many, many things you could say, but you've thought through really three lines of evidence for us to consider today. What are those? You know, since I believe that science is God's testimony, not his alternative. I tend to think of 
the reasons why I think God exists in terms of three components, and that's origins or origins of life, uh, the fine-tuning of what we see and experience, and uh, design of what we're looking at. Um, and in, in terms of the, the origins, I mean, it's probably the most difficult of the three to, to solve for those that haven't assumed a, a God or creator, because the evolution concept that we're so familiar with requires life in which to evolve. So even Richard Dawkins struggled with this and has resorted to what he calls directed panspermia, which is a fancy technical term, meaning that someone else seeded DNA here on Earth or aliens placed it here. So now is this your is this your little opinion, Brian, if I could say it this way, or is this a, <laughs> this is this a scientifically accepted thing? You just threw out there that evolution as we currently understand it in pop culture required life and then goes from there. I thought that Darwin's book was the origin of species and it helped us understand where everything came from. You're saying that's different. Is that is that a, a quirk of yours or is that generally accepted? No, I, I think that's it's generally accepted. And you picked up right away on the irony of the book, which is Origins of the Species. And what's so funny is that it, it doesn't speak to the origins. It speaks to the evolution uh, of how we originate new species, not the ori origin or beginning of first life. And that's what I'm meaning when we're talking about the origins of life. It's the first living organism from which they needed to begin the evolutionary process in that theory. So how does the origin of life point to the existence of God? You know, for, for the longest time, um, there was a textbook that was used by Dean Kenyon called uh, Biochemical Predestination, in which he outlined how chemicals could form primitive living organisms through random processes. Um, he was viewed as the authority for many years in the origins, and his textbook was used in the classroom over 20 years. And one day, one of his students pointed out that some of the recent science discoveries posed a challenge to a few of the assumptions that he had in his textbook. And to his credit, Dean Kenyon looked at his uh, hypothesis and looked at the, and the new science and actually had to revise his hypothesis, because he, he realized that, hey, I can no longer support this theory, given what we now know. And he co-authored a new book called The Pandas and People, in which he re-explores the concept of the origins of life. Um, he saw the need to introduce the views of intelligent design in comparison with the traditional Darwinian frame of reference. So it's very interesting to see somebody like that change. So when, when we see... Um, such difficulties with understanding, explaining the problem of origins. I mean, the chemistry alone is, is tremendously challenging to begin with what we know to be uh, some of the basic functions in cells. Um, the mechanics of traditional Darwinian evolution even itself uh, is becoming problematic with some of the new discoveries that we have in the sciences. Douglas Axe, uh, who's a scientist from the, uh, I'm going to try and say this right, the Abraham Institute, which is the structural biology unit in Cambridge. He published a paper in the journal Molecular Biology basically showing the difficulty with the traditional Darwinian method statistically. He was able to show that it's actually more likely that I would find one random hidden atom 
amongst all the atoms in the Milky Way galaxy on the first try than for one mutation in a DNA strand to become a functioning protein that actually works. I mean, that's, that's one atom. That's not planets. That's not stars. That's not dust. That is atoms. I mean, that's a huge statistical barrier to try and overcome for one protein that is new to be introduced through this process of mutations of DNA. I mean, that's astounding. Now, isn't this, though, the classic God of the gaps? Okay, we can't explain it yet, so God did it. I mean, why isn't it a, a valid position to say, well, given enough time, random chance will produce the very first living organism? I mean, that's, that's what is said, and many people believe that. Now, that's exactly the right question to ask because um, that that has the appearance of the God of the gaps. Because we can't understand it, uh, we uh, we are apparently assigning God to this. But I didn't necessarily say that here, though. What I'm saying here is that I'm calling into question the validity of the Darwinian method based on the statistics that we're showing here. When we talk about given enough time, um, and that's usually been the great savior for most of the non-theological or non-faith-based responses in order to explain what's happening, because they realize the statistical challenge they have to overcome for these new processes to be introduced by random and unguided processes. But the kind of time that we're talking about is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and that's kind of where we start to get into some of the design evident things. Um, because if you look at the um, some of the classic examples are Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. You know, these finches showed that the birds adapted to the changes in the food supply, evolving with different beaks to accommodate the environmental food chain. However, the time frame was much too fast to account for random variations from the mutation in the genetic code to account for the changes. In fact, they saw the beaks revert back when the food supply returned to its previous state. Um, what we now know is that epigenetics could account for their relatively quick change. And epigenetics, um, for those that aren't familiar with the term, or this is the study of, of what turns on and off the portions of our genes. And what was so astounding is they actually found that there were genes and some code in the genes that were predisposed for these new adaptations, and they were simply just being turned on and off. That means they were pre-existing. There was something pre-programmed into the genetic code that allowed them to have that particular adaptation, which is extraordinary. But to get back to your question about, you know, given enough time, you know, the, the statistics here are really what's challenging. And we have to try and look at what are some practical limits to some numbers when we, when we start throwing out, well, given enough time. Well, that's kind of a, a, a blank answer and a hopeful answer. But if you were to think about, you know, how, how can I say never, you know, when, when, you're, when you're the physics geek and you're asking this girl out and she says, you know, it's one in a million chance that I'll go out with you. Do you jump up and down and say that's an exciting prospect, or do you just accept defeat and say, hey, you know, I realize that's a practical limitation? <laughs> Reminded of the scene from Dumb and Dumber, right? I, so you're exactly. saying there's a chance. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. It was. I mean, um, it's shameful to think about how that might play out in reality, but um, there were some scientists that said, look, we got to get a grip on what the statistics of never are, right? And so they actually tried to make some 
far-reaching assumptions about the number of particles in the entire universe. And they said, well, what if we took every particle in the entire universe and let it interact with every other particle a thousand billion times every second for an exaggerated length of the life of the universe? Then we'd come up with something would be never if I could choose one of those interactions the first time. That would be a practical limit of never. And the number they came out is one chance and 10 to the 110th power. So that's every particle in the entire universe for the known life of the universe interacting a thousand billion times every second. That's one chance in 10 to the 110th. But what's crazy is the odds of functional proteins being necessary for life to form in the same place by random chances is one part in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's one with 40,000 zeros after it. And this is a calculation made by Hoyle, and, um, and I'm not even going to say his name right, but it's Wickramashinghi. Good try. I'm not good at pronunciations. I, <laughs> I hear if you say it fast enough, it sounds, sounds right. But, I mean, these kinds of statistics here really challenge us when we say, hey, given enough time, what do you mean by given enough time, and how much is enough time? And are we going to be far in excess of what some of these practical understandings of never would be? I mean, that's really where we get into this. Well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but scientists today can't create simple life in a lab, can we? I mean, we, we with with people interacting with these molecules, we can't take non-consciousness and bring consciousness or bring uh, just chemicals together to some kind of working organism. And we're, we're trying to figure that out. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's been one of the biggest challenges is how do you define when something is living and not living? And you could say, well, it has to do with mitochondrial processes that are functioning or not functioning. And, and it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, the, the joke of, you know, somebody that's a ex, extremely proficient scientist challenging God saying, Hey, look, I can do what you can do and, and watch me create life out of, out of the ground. And, and God says, okay. And he reaches down and grabs a handful of dirt and gets started. And the scientist reaches down and does the same. And, and God says, no, you got to get your own dirt. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the challenge has really been there for quite some time. I mean, we have been really baffled by it. Now, we don't want to get into the God of the Gaps there either. Um, you know, just saying that we can't do it now doesn't mean that we won't be able to do it in the future. But certainly what we found is the complexity is just mind-boggling of what we're faced with here to try and overcome those barriers to actually creating life. It seems that it requires life to get life. And the more and more we look, the deeper and deeper we look, um, the complexity seems to bear more and more uh, design features and information features. And the DNA alone, with 3 billion base pairs of information in a DNA strand in the human body, that is a huge chunk of information that would be astronomically prohibitive to form in a random process. Well, one of my favorite quotes about even that subject right there is from Francis Crick, who is the recipient of the Nobel Prize for co-discovering DNA. He's a sharp guy. And he said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but evolved. And so that amazing? It's a, well, it's, it's amazing <laughs> because I, I had always thought that science was in search of 
the truth. And yet, it seems like what Dr. Crick is saying here is that there are there are limits. There are things that we cannot say, even though they look obvious. And so, I mean, just your background as a scientist, Brian, why is there this barrier to say we can't invoke God, or even if you don't want to say that, we can't invoke a, a vague designer of some kind? Why is that off limits? You know, it's very curious um, that, you know, you even you see that statement made by Francis Crick and you have to ask yourself, why did he have to make that statement? It's because it looks designed. Um, there's so much information there and, and there's this aversion to wanting to acknowledge it because if if there is an intelligent designer or if there is a creative force behind this organizing these structures and designs of things, I might be accountable to them and I'd, I'd much rather not be accountable to anybody. I'd much rather not deal with the consequences of something that is brilliant enough, powerful enough, um, and smart enough to do this kind of design and sustain uh, such a creation. That's a scary thought. Um, I'd much rather stick with my status quo where I am the one that's in charge and there are no rules and I'm not accountable to anybody. It's a frightening thing to think of what that means. So it's really an emotional thing. I mean, if what you're saying is is right, then it's not about the science or the process. It's about what this means for practically my my life. There there's implications in the here and now based on whether there's a god or not. Yeah, absolutely. I and I think that's the honest answer here is that we're seeing an emotional response. So we've talked about, uh, just briefly, origins of life. We've talked about design of, of life. And the third thing that you mentioned, Brian, was the fine-tuning of the universe as evidence for the existence of God. So can you help us to understand what that means? Yeah, one of my favorite aspects of looking at what science says about a potential intelligent design or creator is the is the Big Bang event. Now, this is something that um, science has been exploring for a long time by evidence of these microwave background radiation that we've seen that uh, that equates to basically an echo from a Big Bang type event. Um, and what's so extraordinary about that event is if the initial explosion of the Big Bang, which would be basically all of the mass in our universe in a in a small and defined area, exploding outward from there. If that initial explosion, the Big Bang, had differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th, and that's one with 60 zeros afterwards, the universe would have either quickly collapsed back on itself or expanded too rapidly for stars to form. So this is apart from the philosophical question that, that beginnings such as the Big Bang represents. Just the idea that this kind of of narrow window for success for our current situation, that's something that represents a fine tuning that we just have to pay attention to. I mean, how likely would that occur? And then, you know, the Big Bang being evidenced by this uh, background radiation would seem to point to this beginning event. And if we have this beginning event, at some point we have to ask, well, how did it begin and what was the cause of this beginning? And it, you, to have something that is having a beginning, philosophically and logically, has to originate from something without a cause and without a beginning. So something eternal had to give rise to something that is temporal 
when you're when you're dealing with something as large as this big bang like this and that really begs the question about creator itself for sure um and and you know then the question typically you get is well who created the god that created the god that created the big bang well don't stop there keep going who created the God, who created the God, who created the God, and it just doesn't end. At some point, you've got to have something that was uncreated that gave rise to something that had a beginning. I mean, that's that's just the Big Bang. If we look at the individual atom, uh, the strong nuclear force that binds protons to neutrons that's in the middle of every atom, um, that had if that had been stronger or weaker by as little as 5%, life would be impossible. I mean, that, that's another element of, of astonishment, just to think how precariously our, our whole universe exists. Uh, the thinnest of thin razors that it's balanced on this edge. Again, we get into questions of probability. How's the likely, how likely would this occur or even stay maintained in that way? I mean, it's just astounding to me. So fine-tuning is a, is a big part of what leads me to believe in a creator and a creator that is a God. And it seems like this is a cumulative case argument, right? You've presented three lines of evidence, origins, design, fine-tuning. There are many other things that we could look at in the universe and say these in all likelihood point to or give evidence to the existence of God. Maybe each one of them individually isn't fully persuasive, but when you add them all up together, you've got to explain all of this, and it makes a lot of sense that there might be a God that exists and that made all of this the way that it is. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely, and in fact, um, I think it's that kind of cumulative uh, observation that gives rise to an objective basis for somebody having faith in a God or creator. Um, the last thing that we want to have is something that's just blind faith that's not based on anything. And I, I get that it is uncomfortable to just kind of close your eyes and jump into the darkness. Uh, but John Lennox would make the statement, it's not a jump into the darkness, it's a jump from the darkness out into the light into something that has an objective basis. We're not just blindly guessing here. We have things that seem to indicate that there would be a God or creator, and that is where we begin our pursuit, and that's where we begin to to uh, to follow up, up on this. It has great implications for everything we do every day. It does, and, and I think I'd want to be clear here that what, what you're not saying in this podcast is that this evidence points to the God of the Bible or that we've shown that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, that's all way down the road. We're going to tackle those kind of questions in different podcasts. But what you're saying is there's a there's some kind of generic God. We can we can gather from the data, even though we've talked through in 20 minutes here, that there's some kind of creator that's powerful, that's smart, so forth. And, and then from there, we continue our investigation into okay, what else can we learn if there is a creator? Which, which God is it? Does it line up with one of the world's major religions? So we're going to explore all of that in due time. Uh, for those who are listening to this podcast, Brian, 
who are wrestling with this question of the existence of God, what would you want to leave them with? I think just the statement that I made at the beginning, which was consider the possibility that science is not an alternative to God, but rather perhaps the testimony of God. And when I say testimony, I mean it's an indication that points towards him. So I think if you, if you walk away with anything, think about that as the concept uh, to pursue and take a next step with. Brian, I want to thank you for joining me on the Search Podcast today, and I want to thank everyone for listening. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends. We would love to continue the conversation with you, so if you have a question or a topic you'd like to see us discuss on the podcast, email us, podcast at searchnational.org. And in the show notes for this podcast, you'll find links to resources and anything else that we think might be helpful to you. So until next time, thanks for listening.